know how to read till the fourth grade the second time. And so this type of thing was my nightmare all throughout middle school. But no, all joking, all joking aside, we are here and we get to experience and hear God's word, which is good and true. So please follow along with me as I read Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Phi-Hephroth between Megdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Sephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness will shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants has changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all of the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel was going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Phi-Hethroth in front of Baal-Siphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, How, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back 
by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariots' wheels so they were drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. Peter. Amen. Thanks for reading that. <laughs> I asked him to read it because I couldn't pronounce those cities. I was trying to figure that out. <laughs> but all joking aside, um, I am glad to be with you guys and opening up the word for you today. We have been going through the book of Exodus. And as one preacher put it, uh, the major theme, overarching theme, as we we're just diving in for one Sunday, it is saved for God's glory. And we see that here at this major event in the Old Testament, people of God and their history and in our history, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. And so I pray that as we dive into this text, that you would see it with fresh eyes and fresh hearts and receive the word of God to you this morning. So please pray with me one more time. Father in heaven, we pray that as we come to your word, God, we pray that you would take away the distractions that are in our hearts and our minds, the things that we're thinking about after church that we got to do or the things coming up this week. And God, we ask that you would please fix our eyes on you, be glorified, and Lord, draw us near to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, my wife and I have been watching a show about uh, the, the travel west in the year 1883. The show follows a group of immigrants who are traveling from Texas all the way up to Oregon. It was a time where the west was known as wild for many different reasons. It was lawless. It was inhumane. It was underdeveloped and unsafe in so many ways. On any given day, there could be a hundred things that could take your life. And yet in this untamed wilderness, it also signaled for a lot of people hope. The hope of being able to restart, 
the hope of being able to find something new, to leave what, what has passed before them in their lives, leave that in the past and go on and to live some version of the American dream. But in this deadly and dangerous journey to the promised land of Oregon, they would face many, many obstacles. And in this one particular episode that I'm thinking about, they had one one obstacle that was feared maybe more than any other obstacle that they would face. And that was a river. Because you see, they had to cross a lot of rivers and there weren't modern day bridges that they could cross. Pay a toll and there you go, right? You get over safely. No, these river crossings were deadly and dangerous, especially when you're talking about taking people across that can't swim and, and, and these wagons, right, that would get caught up and you have clothes that are, are heavy and can easily drown. The choice for them was to listen to their leaders who were two seasoned cowboys who had done this journey many times before. They could listen to their leaders and follow their lead or they could perish in the water. And this river crossing in particular proved to be a deadly blow to their morale because many people died because they didn't listen to their leaders in this crossing. And I bring this up because it tees up our passage with many parallels. There's a dangerous journey in the wilderness. The choice between questioning their leaders or obeying them and following them where they lead. Staying in what was safe and known or venturing into the unknown. And there also are some great differences as well from this episode to the one that we've just read about. The Israelites here are following their ultimate leader. They're following God. Yes, they're following Moses, but God has put him in that position. He is guiding them to safety as their great deliverer. And so here, as we look at chapter 14, we're going to see... That in Christ, God defeats all of our enemies and fights all of our battles, though we deserve the very opposite in our own pilgrim journey. See, we're going to see that time and time again throughout this text, God's undeserved mercy and grace to people like you and me. But with this in mind, I want to look at this well-known story, really looking at God's character. Who does this passage say that God is? And what does that mean for us? The first thing that we're going to look at is God's plan. God's plan. You know, as we just read through this story, I think one of the things that sticks out very clearly to each of us is that God had a plan and that he was carrying things out exactly the way that he planned. I mean, you can't help but get to that conclusion when you read this story. See, God is not like us sometimes when we fail to make a plan, right? Maybe there are some of us that just kind of like to do life on a whim. We don't plan and we suffer the consequences. Maybe there's others of us who make plans but never really follow through on those plans. But you see, God is not like that. God always makes his plans and he always follows through on his plans. And we see that here in the text. In verses 1 to 4, God lays out this plan. It's kind of like the Lord's pregame meeting with Moses. He lays out, this is exactly how things are going to go, Moses, so pay attention. Look at verse 4 one more time. He says, I'm a hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. Why? So that they shall know 
that I am the Lord. So what does God do here? God is giving some of the plan. He's giving the details. He doesn't give every detail, right? But he gives Moses just enough to know so that he can walk by faith. And that's what God often does in our lives, is it not? He doesn't give us the whole plan, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. He gives us just enough so we can take that next step of faith. Maybe you remember that famous scene in, um, uh, oh gosh, why am I blanking on it now? Um, Harrison Ford, help me out. Indiana Jones, that's right. The bridge, right? The bridge, he can't see. He's got to take the next step. That's often what God does in our lives. And so Pharaoh's going to think that the people of God, that the Israelites are wandering. He's going to think that they're, they're helpless and that he's got them cornered. But God will get glory over Pharaoh, just like he did in the ten plagues. In the few chapters before this, earlier, each of those ten plagues, what happens? God shows that he is greater than everything that the Egyptians trust in, everything the Egyptians worship. He says he is greater, showing that through his plagues. He is committed to showing the Egyptians that he alone is God. But you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people of God here to really understand this text, right? We have an advantage because we're looking back on history. We know the end of the story, especially if we've grown up in the church and heard this story a lot, which probably a lot of us have. We know that they're going to get across safely, but for the the people of God, they did not know that. Think about this. In front of you is the Red Sea. It's uncrossable. You're maybe a million people, two million people, depending on how you count the numbers of the people of God at that time, and you have a sea right in front of you. Behind you, you have soon to be one of the largest and most advanced armies in the world. 600 chariots, the text says. And you know what? You're not an army, even though you're a lot of people. You're tired. You're hungry. You have the very young. You have the very old Altogether, you're not in a position to be able to fight and win against this army. So humanly speaking, this is a bad spot to be in. Makes me think about, it's kind of like a runaway slave. When a slave is running away and they're being chased by the white owner, slave owner. The hound dogs are chasing them down. They know they're not far away. And they know their only two prospects are what? Death or going back to slavery. In light of all this, in verse 10, it says that they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Remember in the story that I shared with you in the beginning about the group of immigrant settlers. One of the things that they did when when things got tough, they began to question their leaders. Maybe these guys don't know what they're talking about. Maybe we can figure out a way to do things better on our own. Maybe we can take our chances into our own hands. You know, usually this is what happens, even in the church. When things are going the way that we expect and the way that we want, we'll follow our leaders. It happens in the church, happens in politics, happens in everything, wherever there is leaders. But as soon as something starts to go downhill, as soon as that leader begins to mess with the things that are most precious to me, Then we start to challenge them. We start to question them. They really know what they're talking about. Can I really trust them? Am I really going to follow them? And that's exactly what happens here. Because in the midst of crisis, 
their true colors come out just like us. They turned on their leaders. That's what happens in verses 11 and 12. The people of God lash out sarcastically. Were there not enough graves back in Egypt? And they began to say silly things like, oh, it was actually better for us back in Egypt. No, it wasn't. Right? Just a few chapters earlier, they were complaining and whining. They were slaves against their will. They were being made to do things that were, humanly speaking, impossible. Take away, make those bricks without the straw. Were things really better back then? No, they saw the army and they started freaking out and turning on their leaders. But thankfully, what does Moses do here? He doesn't give in to the insecurities and the questioning of God's people. He reminds them of the plan that God has. Verses 13 and 14, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you just have to be still or only be silent. He reminds them that God is going to fight their battles, that he is going to be the warrior on their behalf who fights for them this day. He would cause Pharaoh's heart to be hardened, He would get glory over Pharaoh and his army. He would save his people and deliver them and bring them across dry land. It's so hard to read this story and not see that things are going exactly to the way that God had planned. He's active throughout all the story, throughout every plot, turn, and twist. He is there driving this story. And I hope you see that this morning. But what about the people of God? What's their part in all of this? Right? Surely you've heard before the the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We tend to talk about that a lot in our churches. What's man's responsibility here? Well, it's true that they had to follow their God-given leader, Moses. Right? That was their command. And they had to actually walk across the dry land. But you see here that this story really doesn't highlight man's responsibility. Because it's mainly about God and about what he is doing for his people and on behalf of his people. Their big contribution to the crossing of the Red Sea was to be still and watch God do his thing. I want you to think about that. Watch God do his thing. Watch God accomplish the victory on their behalf. Sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. And it's not always easy. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said this, I dare say you think it will be an easy thing to stand still, but it's one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it's one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. Have you learned that way? Are you learning that way of standing still at times, trusting in the Lord's work on your behalf? God wants you and I to know that he carries out his plans and that he accomplishes the salvation of his people. 
But there's also another attribute or characteristic of who God is that we see in this text. And we see also that God is present with his people. God is present with his people all throughout this wonderful story. There's so many ways that we see that in our passage today. Even before the, this passage, in chapter, the last half of chapter 13, before the crossing of the Red Sea, we see that God is with his people through what? The pillar of cloud and fire. He is out before them. Back in verse 21 says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. It's as if God is saying, I am with you. I am for you, my people. I will guide you through this wilderness journey. Each step of the way, I am here. Just like I said I'd be. Another example of this is that God, when he allows the heat to be turned up, he showed that he was with them and for them. As Pharaoh's army breathed down their neck, wanting to bring them back into slavery. Think about it this way. God could have easily said one word, and they would have been teleported from Egypt to the promised land, right? He could snap his fingers and make that happen, could he not? He could. But he chose to descend in the midst of them, in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their heartache, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their hard times. He chose to descend and to be with them. He wanted them also to know that he alone was God. And God went to great lengths for them to be able to see and to touch and to taste and to believe. He did this through the miraculous over and over again in our story. And we know that sometimes God chooses to work in miraculous ways in our midst, whether it's a miraculous healing or a miraculous provision. That's the way that God shows that he is present in our midst. One pastor tells the story of a liberal pastor who was preaching in an African-American church on this story. This liberal pastor, he didn't believe in miracles, right? He didn't believe that the Bible was God's word, but this African-American church did. The story goes like this. At a certain point in his sermon, the minister referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. Praise the Lord, someone shouted, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. However, the minister did not happen to believe in miracles. So he said rather condescendingly, it was not a miracle. They were in marshlands, the tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. Praise the Lord, the man shouted again, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. <laughs> right? God chooses sometimes to work in our midst through the miraculous and to show that he is present. One more way he shows this is on the tail end of our story in verses 19 and 20. It says, The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And then it says it lit up the night before them. Now, why is this significant? What happened? Well, you remember before our story, I just pointed out that that cloud and that pillar was in front of them, guiding them along the way, kind of like that North Star. But what happens now as their enemies come behind them? He goes behind them and acts as a buffer between them 
and the Egyptians. It's like he's saying to Pharaoh, you stay right there, Pharaoh. I'm not ready for you yet. I'm going to let my people walk across dry land, and I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to protect them just like I said I would. And when I'm ready for you, I'll come back for you. Isn't that amazing? How God moves from forward to behind and shows his people, I am with you, I love you, I care for you, I will protect you. This adds to a whole new layer of God being with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us in the same way today. Earlier I mentioned that the crossing of the Red Sea is one of the most important examples of God's saving his people throughout all of the history of the Bible. Time and time again, when God's people are faced with trouble from within and from without, they can look back with confidence and know, my God is for me. My God is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my warrior. He will fight for me on my behalf. It's no wonder why this story, along with the rest of the Exodus, played such an important role for slaves in our country. You ever think about that? They identify with this story because they see God as a savior and deliverer despite the worst of circumstances that they will choose to believe in the God of the Bible, the God who is their deliverer and their savior no matter what happens. It's a story of hope and resilience and of deliverance. But you know, it it would be wrong for us only to view this story as a source of encouragement while faced with the trials Of this world. You know, another way to put this is by asking the question what are the battles that you're facing right now, and where do you need God to fight on your behalf? And that's true to a certain extent. God surely does fight our battles of our finances and of our marriage and of of problems going on larger in our city or in our country. And yes, He does fight all those battles. But I don't think that's the major application here of this particular text. See, as Christians on this side of the cross and and of the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we first need to think about this story in light of Christ's ministry, in light of his work. Think about some of these parallels to to the story that we just read and then the story of what Christ has done for us. The people there were in a desperate situation and they needed to be saved. But the problem was that they could not save themselves. They needed someone outside of themselves to come and to save them, to deliver them. God himself was the only one who could fight the battle on their behalf, and he did. And now when we look at it this way, God's salvation at the Red Sea for the people of God was a lesser type of the salvation that he accomplished in the work of Christ for you and for me on the cross. Again, think of the parallels. The Bible says that you and I are in a desperate situation. We are dead in our sins. Justly deserving. The wrath of God. The punishment for all eternity for our sins. We can't do anything about it. There's nothing that we can do. No amount of money that we can make. No amount of good that we can do to earn our salvation. We need somebody outside ourselves to come and to save us. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in. He lives the perfect life that you and I can never live. He dies the death that each of us deserve. He came and fought our greatest battle. Yes, our lesser battles, for sure. 
But he came to fight our greatest battle, and he was the victor, which we just celebrated at Easter. He arose victorious from the grave. And that's what the resurrection proves, that he accomplished the work the Father sent him to do for people like you and for me. Brothers and sisters, the only way to be saved from our sins, to begin that new life with God, is through the salvation that God alone has worked in Christ. It's not something, again, that we can do ourselves. It's something that's to be freely received. Just like a kid puts out their hands to receive a birthday present. They didn't do anything, right? They probably acted up 15, 20 times already this morning, right before they woke up. And all they do is just put their hands out to receive that gift from their parents. And this is a gift that you and I each receive. And once we receive that gift, we have been freed and empowered to live like the Israelites, trusting God, taking that next step of faith in this pilgrim journey. But maybe there's one in here this morning. Maybe there's some in here this morning that maybe identify more with the Egyptians. You may not say it that way. Maybe you identify more with a liberal pastor or whatever it may be. But you just say, you know what, this all seems too good to be true. I don't know if I can believe this. I think this passage speaks to you as well this morning. One, there is a real warning here. Because what happened to the Egyptians? God took care of them, right? It's a warning for those that are rebelliously living against Christ to say, don't take this lightly. Yes, while you have breath in your lungs, there is still time for you to repent and for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that greatest gift of all, the salvation of your souls and a life with God. That's the invitation that Jesus gives to you this morning. And I want to close with these words from John chapter 5. Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed or crossed over from death to life. And I want to invite you, if you're here this morning, and this is where you are, to cross over from death to life, just like the Israelites crossed over through the Red Sea. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, it's a wonderful thing to be able to know that you speak to us, that you're not silent, that you're not distant, that you're not far off, but you have chosen to be with us, your people. And Lord, you delight in taking people that are far from you and bringing them close. God, we know that we were all the broken, we were all the sinners, we were all the rebels before you come and saved us. We thank you for the salvation that you have worked in Jesus through his life, his death, his resurrection for undeserving people like us, for complainers and whiners, Lord, just like the Israelites. And Lord, as we begin to come to the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would just help us in a unique way to think upon what you did for us, Jesus. It's not something for us to just meditate on Good Friday, but every day of every week, of every month, of every year, to think and to meditate and to be encouraged and empowered by the truth of the gospel. So Lord, please help us to taste and to see that you are good 
Help us to be still and to remember that you have fought the greatest battle that we ever will have, and you won. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to prepare, celebrate the Lord's Supper together,